I'm back. Nobody cares. And anyway, <laughs> get on and read the intro bit. <laughs> on show 110, Eric Meyer on version targeting, the business benefits of usability testing, and do I have to have a blog? <laughs> Welcome to BlogWorld.com. Podcast for those involved in designing, developing, and running websites. Designing, developing, and running websites. This is what everybody waits for. This is what everybody waits for. Hello and welcome to the <laughs> podcast web stuff developers, web, designers, things like, like that. World, yeah, stuff. This is I what, feel like Noel Coward now. Yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> Dear listener, let me tell you a story of one. With a smoking jacket. We're, we're currently... Right, so this podcast is a doomed podcast. Doomed. Number one, the normal office that we were or meeting room we called the podcast in wasn't available. Mm-hmm. So, we are now currently in an empty room, which is why it might sound a little bit echoey. Echo. 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 <laughs> Number two, this is the third attempt at recording this sodding podcast. <laughs> and the word I wanted to use was a lot ruder than that, but I'm trying to kind of keep our clean marking thing in iTunes. So, third time we're recording this because Marcus has a dodgy mic. If you could only see his mic, you would realise how dodgy it is. So, it's all right. It's just got a few marks on it. Yeah. But to add insult to injury, so we recorded it the first time, fine. We recorded it the second time, fine. And then we thought, we've got it now. It's all sorted. So we took the furniture that we put <laughs> in this empty office back into our own. So now we are lying on the floor of an empty room recording this stupid podcast. <laughs> and I was in a bad mood when we started. Mm. I did cheer up, as you will hear later in the podcast, I am cheery, but I am now pissed off again. Mm. <laughs> so, let me get out my list of things I'm pissed off about. And one of them is that Hicks and Oxton that were on the show last week. They're scum. They deserve to die horrible, horrible deaths. So they come on the show last week, right, Marcus? Oh, by the way, nice to have you back. I feel like I've said that so many times now. Yes, oh, it's lovely to be here. Yes. Kind of. Again. Sort of. Yes. Well, it was for a so, while. It's not anymore. So it's been actually quite I good. have made it my um, uh, New Year's resolution. That's not right. Just a resolution um, to interrupt you as often as possible. And you did say you'd never come back on the show again after never mind the Buzzcocks. Yes, that's because um, I was going to go on for my world tour. Yeah. Well, so how's that going? Completed. Done. Finished. Done. That was yes. a very short yeah. talk. <laughs> yes, it was. It consisted of Scunthorpe, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so we, we did humiliate you in your absence by playing the bit from Nevermind the Buzzcocks, which isn't very funny because you don't actually speak. Uh, they didn't give me a microphone. And they don't give anyone a microphone in the lineup. And also they couldn't. Oh, it wasn't just you then that they thought better not give him a microphone. No, it wasn't just me, no. <laughs> Although they could have thought that maybe. Although then to add insult to injury, the other people in the lineup who were supposed to be like you were actually about 20 years older. Yeah, I'm really not sure how to take that because I sent, they said, please can you send, send us photographs? So I just did, a, I can't remember. I, I either had a look on the, some pictures I've got or I snapped one with my phone or something like that and said, there you go. And then when I got there, 
it's like, oh, you look a lot younger than your picture. And I thought, oh, that's great. See, no, Kinda usually cool. it's the other way around. People send pictures of themselves when they yeah, were yeah. like 20 They had pictures of me when I was uh, 20, yeah, of you course, see. yes. <laughs> kind of relevant. You know. But yes, it was quite amusing. I particularly like, liked, it must be number four, he's got sparkly eyes, <laughs> which amused me immensely. Well, yes, most of my friends found that hilarious as well. Yes. But that's another story. Okay. <laughs> right, so yes, anyway, there was that. Um, yeah, so I was at Hickston and Oxton. Hickston. 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 <laughs> yes, so those two from Risington Podcast. So I thought, for a start, I thought, I'll be generous. I'll be nice. Marcus is away. Let's give those young whippersnappers a chance to come on a proper grown-up podcast. Yeah, see what it's like in the... In the, in the in, professional in, league. Premier League, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. It's like, you know, being the wheezy little boy that sits on the bench at We say the lying on the floor yeah. of an empty <laughs> office. <laughs> Professional, kind of. Oh, ah. oh, sorry, I'm starting to feel it a bit now. He's put, pulled his back. So, yeah, I let them on the show, out of the kindness of my heart. I go even a step further, mm-hmm. and I promote their show. And I say, you know, there's a, it's really good, subscribe to it, check it out. They've got a new episode coming out soon. It's going to be really <laughs> exciting. I then listen to their last episode after our, our one goes out. Do you know what the bastards did? <laughs> I mean, just to, 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 to explain a little bit about their show, in case you haven't listened to it, which I don't believe you have. I have listened to a bit of it. It's right. lots of invented questions. Yes. People's, yes. Yeah. So no, no actual content yep. of any yep. description. They pretend like they've got lots of um, listeners, um, and then they make up questions from those listeners. Well, I'm sorry to say... That one of their made-up questions, yeah, and yeah. it was obviously made up, as you'll hear from from what we said. <laughs> but they, they said they read out this question supposedly from somebody or other. But it yeah. said, John Smith from John London. John Smith from London. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it said, um, "Oh, I love the Risington podcast so much better than Paul and Marcus." Bastards. Shock silence. This is yeah. So we're not having them back on again. No. In Mind fact, you, have to better carry I'm on being nice stop. to Hicks for a little bit longer. Right? Oh, yeah, we are working with him. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, I'm moving on from my hatred. <laughs> and I don't care about the microphone. If the microphone's screwed, I don't care. Don't care about listening to podcast. Don't care about anything. Anymore. La, la, la. I bet you care about going to South by Southwest in exactly one month. Ooh, really? Yeah, or do you? Well, <laughs> I do. I can't wait. No, I, no, I am excited. I am excited. The fact that I have to do a panel making me a teeny bit nervous. Yeah. Especially because our panel, because Gina Bolton, here we go, more venom coming. Out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gina Bol- Bolton, who I, you know, I like, you know, she's really lovely and all the rest of it. Because she's pretty, she gets on the cover of the magazine, mm. which suddenly sends the the profile of our our panel through the roof. I'm worried that we might be in a big room. Yeah, you're going to be in one of the huge ones. Although I was talking to um, um, Joe Stump, who is. Um, one of the, the lead developer at, or one of the developers, I don't know whether he's lead or not, at dig.com. And he's been roped into, you know, a panel and say, yeah, come on a panel with us. And of course, the panel he's on with is with like Kevin Rose and people with really high profiles and he's in the biggest room. <laughs> he's like completely <laughs> crapping himself about it. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, but you'll be in the biggest room as well. No, no, I'll be fine. Yeah, you will. No, I'll be all right. Yeah. I'll let Gina... We, we don't, you don't want to be in a small room. It's too intimate. You know, you want to be in a huge auditorium, Paul. Yeah. Anyway, so With hundreds, that, uh, maybe that, even thousands of people. I in can't there. spend too long worrying about things like that because I'm just so popular this year and doing so many conferences. Yes, you are. Paul, and aren't you? you know, there's 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 that. There's um, also Highland Fling. I'm chairing that. 
doing little interview sessions. It's going to be like parky. People are going to give their presentations. Come sit down and I'm going to ask some questions. Right. So that's fun. And then I'm doing... <laughs> that could either really work or really not work. Yeah. It, it could be horribly embarrassing. Stop finding the weaknesses. <laughs> and then I'm doing future web design where I'm chairing yeah. that and doing a workshop. With me. With you. Yeah. Which we need to prepare. Yeah. Well, you better do that because I actually do work in the company. Oh, know. shut up. Yeah. And then um, what else we got? App Media. Yep. Doing that. And then something a mysterious called Singularity, mm. which we'll find out more about next week. We just recorded an interview with a robot. Singularity. That's... Oh, I can't use the you joke. You can't do that joke. Now you've just said, people... we've just recorded it, Paul. Yeah, <sighs> it'll seem you'll just repeat it. It's so unprofessional. No, no, I'm, t- I'm <laughs> telling people what's coming up. Because yeah, I okay. also wanted to say, we just recorded it on the worst mobile phone line ever to somebody yeah. in Geneva. Yeah. So we've got a row talking about that next week. So, yeah, loads of, loads of good stuff coming up. Anything else that we talked about on the three times? Great British Booze Up. British Booze Up. Yeah. Good point. Yes. So sign up for that at upcoming.org. And just search on Great British Booze Up and you will find it. And 120 people coming at the moment. Mm. And they've asked for your credit card. My credit card? Who? Yeah. They? they. Everyone coming? No, <laughs> no clear, yeah, clear Left, who we're doing it with, and Carsonified, um, was saying that it's be- being so popular this year that we're going to have to put some more money behind the bar. Okay. Well, so I just said you're you have a credit break. card, Paul. Yeah, but I'm just fr- go for it, mate. No, no, I'm afraid to because if it's on my credit card, then Chris will tell me no, off. No, you can't do that because I've got to buy hardware when I'm in America. Oh, that's true. Yeah, uh. but I'm yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. that nobody cares about. We're just twittering we're now. Up now aren't we? <laughs> I there were loads of other things to talk about, but I, I yeah. know video podcast. Talk about that because that was oh, a good one. Oh, all right then. Basically, Lee, who works with us, yes. has I been... I don't know why I'm going, yes, I know this story. Tell them. Uh, okay. What, them? Your they're, computer? They're, 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 they live the inside. people that live in my computer. Okay. <laughs> little people. Um, <laughs> Lee, who works with us, has been doing some video podcasts. He's been recording our clients. And he's been doing... Why is this funny? I'm just thinking, can you imagine if he was recording a video podcast of us right now? <laughs> I mean, you yeah. look like something out of some Renaissance picture. You should be a naked lady lying on a sofa. No, no, stop that. No, la, la, la. Just, oh, no, mental image. No, no, no. No, stop that. Anyway, he's, going, he's, he's been doing successfully recording video podcasts for one of our clients using different camera angles, lighting, um, you know, scrolling words for people to read while they're doing it and all that kind of thing. I can't think what that's called. That <laughs> Teleprompt. Teleprompt, yes. Is he really? What, with the whole kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, really? Yeah. Ooh, is so, it stuff he's hired, or is he... No, he uh, created a, it out of magic. It's a bit of paper <laughs> on a roller blind, isn't no, it? No, 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 it's using his laptop. Ah. But, um, so um, he wants to come and record us doing a, a podcast so we can have a video podcast. So cool. that might be next week, but knowing Lee, it'll probably be in six weeks' time. I'd like to do that. It'd be fun. Hmm. Uh, once in a while to do a video podcast. What we've got to do is make sure that we make lots of reference to, to things that he has to edit in, <laughs> just to make it more challenging. Yes, good idea. Yes. There's now a leprechaun jumping on my hand, <laughs> you know, things like that. That would be challenging. Yes, you're yeah. right. Cool. Okay. We can stop now. We'll stop, shall we? I've kind of lost steam. If this the one, news. If this Le- one hasn't stop worked. The news now. Okay, so let's talk news. Before we kick off. Oh, yeah, before we kick off, I thought I ought to say... Are you extending the intro now, Paul? No, no, this is related to news. Okay. Because the thing is, is that there's a lot of relatively new listeners 
Is it? Well, no, let's clarify that. The numbers haven't gone up, but we do have a lot of new listeners and then a lot of people that have realised the show's shit and have stopped listening. <laughs> okay, it's kind of a rolling thing. It's a rolling yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, Eventually, we will run out of web designers in the world and <laughs> there'll be no listeners. But, you know, for now, we're doing all right. I think going for 110 shows, I mean, I'm quite amazed it's still going, to be honest. <laughs> so am I. Um, so, yeah, we're going to kick off. Um, yes, yeah, so I just wanted to say before we kick off mm-hmm. that... Um, I can only fit like three or four news stories in a show, which obviously isn't many. And there are loads more. And there is um, a delicious feed that I run, which you can either subscribe to via RSS or email. So, um, yeah, don't forget to pop along to uh, the Barag World site. And there is a blooming big subscribe link just underneath the logo. And you can get to sites of interesting there. there. No, it doesn't flash. Maybe you should make it flash, Paul. Perhaps that's the answer. Jump what, across the screen. What, Follows the mouse around. That what about what about making everything flash? Because everything's <laughs> equally important on my site. Okay, so first up, then, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the W three school. I have actually heard of it. You I'm have? not raising my hand. No, because you would look like a plonker. <laughs> and there are actually now a lot of people sitting there yeah, in there some... on the train going to work with their hands what raised. About the people driving. We've just caused massive accidents around the world because people are that stupid. Especially <laughs> people that listen to this show, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Don't insult our listeners. They're very intelligent people. Okay, so, um, yes, you can put your hand down now because you are looking kind of stupid. Um, yeah, so W3 School, really good site. It's a massive kind of reference library, um, all kind of web languages and stuff like that. Um, now, although it is very good and has a lot of good content on it. It's not the most impressive um, and it doesn't have the nicest user experience in the world. So if you're kind of looking for an alternative um, but are happy to only look for CSS rather than all the other things. So actually, it's really this is a really rubbish story. Uh, the, the, it's a bad comparison, Paul. I think that's it, all is, it is. Because really, I'm talking about something that actually is massively inferior to W3 school but has potential. So anyway, <laughs> on, on the site point website, they've now added a new reference section. At the moment, it only includes CSS, how obviously, or, or obviously they're looking to expand into other things. I have to say, what it does with CSS, it does very nicely. It's got loads of useful information, um, good examples. And what it does do that W3 School does not is that it also kind of gives you an indication of which browsers support which properties and that kind of stuff. So... It is inferior at the moment because it doesn't cover the breadth of subjects. But if you're only interested in learning about CSS properties and um, stuff like that, then it's a good place to, uh, to check out. And it even includes um, stuff relating to CSS3, which is good. And talking of CSS3, did you Ooh. notice that? I get, I get so good at this. You pro. Da, da, da. <laughs> talking of CSS3, um, there's actually a really interesting article by Brian Suda over at Think Vitamin. Is he Scottish? You know, I don't know. I've met the guy, but now I can't think what his accent was. I, all I know is that he lives in Reykjavik at the moment. Oh, okay. But I don't think he comes from there. He's English. So where's Reykjavik then, Paul? Iceland. Oh. See? Oh. Ah, you <laughs> thought you were going to track me up, and you didn't. So I'm not that thick. So anyway, his article on Think Vitamin is called Stay on Target. Nice little reference to Star Wars there. Well done, Brian. Um, but Target is actually a kind of new CSS pseudo-class. Do you know what pseudo class is? No. Pseudo class is wake up. Wake up? That's so rude. Um, it's like the hover, 
you know, when you can go, you know, change the styling when, when you hover over something. Yeah. That's a pseudo class. So this is a, a pseudo class called target. Um, now, it is a CSS3 um, class. Um, and I have to say at the moment it's not implemented by Internet Explorer, but it's supported by, Fi- by Firefox and to some extent Safari. So the, the support is a bit on the patchy side at the moment. Um, but really interesting article nonetheless that kind of talks about um, some of the kind of things that you could potentially do with this target. So, for example, what it does basically is it allows you to tile, uh, sorry, style the target of a link that um, where you link to something, right? So say if you link to what would have been called anchors, uh, you know, when you jump down the page, mm. they're now called fragments um, because they're not the same as anchors. But anyway, the same kind of principle. So what you could do is if you're jumping down a page to a certain bit of content, you could say um, style that bit of content that when it's targeted, mm. you know, when you jump to it, that it flashes yellow or whatever a flashing yeah a flashing flashing yellow (laughs) well there is something called the um the fade to yellow technique that's often used to highlight new content that's appeared on the page you could in theory also use this to show and hide tabs you know so when you show and hide chunks of the page you could do that with um target where traditionally you've had to use um javascript to do that um of course you might well be asking why i'm bringing this up when it isn't supported by internet explorer it's not like any of us can really use it particularly well, I thought it was quite an interesting glimpse into the future, but also I think possibly it could be used right now for like functionality that's not crucial. Well, so you could use it for what you just described. It doesn't matter if it... If well, it does with the tabs, it would do. No, the tab, no but for the for highlighting... For the highlight, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be like an added bonus okay. that eventually other brow- you know, the Internet Explorer will start to support. Because that would be really useful. I like that. Because if, you mm. if, you if you've got, I don't know, 20 paragraphs, it's the old FAQ thing, isn't it? When... Yeah, you, they put all the questions at the top, followed by all the answers. If you're yeah. flicking down to the one, it's like, which one is it? Yeah, and it would highlight mm. it up. I mean, you can do that kind of thing with JavaScript, but it's mm. just nice that you can do it in CSS. I mean, it does raise an interesting question about, you know, uh, we, you know, I've got, always gone on and I um, HTML is for content, CSS is for design, mm. and, and JavaScript is for behavior. Well, is that, you know, things like hover and target, are they really behaviors? Should we be using JavaScript for those? Mm. But I guess that's probably a bit of a semantic argument, really. Well, it's not. It's because not everybody can... Not, JavaScript isn't available to everyone, so if you can do it via... That is CSS, know, then all the best. CSS, but then yeah. not everybody can use CSS, but majority can. More people can. Yeah. Not many security... Uh, not, not many. I'm um, so confident there for a second. No, no, so and you, you know. it was a good point, because people do turn <laughs> off JavaScript in corporate environments while they don't tend to turn off CSS. No. Anyway... Another article worth reading is called Search Behaviour Patterns. Over at reading the box, it now. Yeah. Over at the Boxes and Arrows site. That is a good one, Marcus. I think you might find that quite interesting. It's an article that looks at how, uh, how people search and the different types of searches there are around. Um, it also looks at the, um, the way um, people actually go about searching what techniques that they use and how we can kind of help and accommodate those kind of techniques. So it's a really good read. Um, and, I, you know, I've kind of, as I said before in this show, I don't think we really give enough attention to search. And this article will really get you thinking about how you can better accommodate people that use search as their primary method of navigation. Um, lots of hints and advice, even if you, to be honest, are working with a fairly inflexible search mechanism that doesn't allow much customization or tweaks. This article does still suggest stuff you can do. So it's a good one. Mm. 
Interesting. Maybe we should do some sort of feature on search. Yeah, we probably should at some point. Um, talking about search usability, that brings me nicely. I'm doing another <laughs> one. Doing it again. Too many links, you know, looks amateur now. Is that have I ever done it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought I was doing well. I spend a lot of time ordering these news stories so they flow on from one another. I Am I wasting my time? Either. No, 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 do it. It gives me something to okay. but you kind commend of, you on. But the trouble is, down. every one of those segues are now destroyed because you interrupt them and we end up going off on a tangent. Mm-hmm. i tell you where this has come from. It's writing this flipping book because all my editor ever puts is, need a segue here, need a segue <laughs> here, need a segue here. I think it's an American thing. Even the word segue sounds very American. I was about to pull you up on that and thought, nah. Because I wasn't sure, but I think it, it is sounds an, like it's an Americanism. It does, yeah. So we don't believe in them anymore. So here's a completely random article that's nothing to do with the previous one, <laughs> um, which is another post from Smashing Magazine. Yay! You do like those, don't you? Well, we haven't had one for a while, and I'm beginning to miss their top ten lists. They do like their top one ten or lists. Two shows. No, it's been quite a while. So they've now got a new one, which is called the Top Ten Principles of Effective Web Design. Personally, I think that's a crap title because it's basically oh, a list of usability techniques. But the okay, top ten web design, you know, well, how do you make your site work? Yeah, well, it's just a <laughs> it's just a title that is aimed at getting them posted on Dig and stuff like right, that. Yeah, it's yeah. got the top ten, and it's got words like effective. But you know, if you put and web design, which is nice and generic, but if you put ten useful um, advice for heuristic testing of usability, you know, it doesn't sound as good, does it? No. So there you go. So that said, it is a very good list anyway and contains some really solid advice about usability. Um, it also contains lots of examples and pretty pictures there for you, Marcus. I'm looking at it. You're looking at the yeah. pretty pictures. That's good. You're enjoying recording the show having internet access at the same time. I know time. it's rare. Normally we're stuck in a meeting room where we don't have internet access. Well, we could get an ethernet cable and plug into the wall. It's not complicated. Yeah, even I can do that. Yeah, see, there we go. So, um, yeah, got some really good solid advice. Those are examples. I don't think it probably offers a lot for anybody that's kind of done a lot of usability work in the past, but it is uh, good for those that maybe have been trying to avoid the pro- uh, the, the um, you good know for pointing subject. clients at. That's a good idea. Yeah, very good. Mm. So there you go. That's the news. Um, and we have a feature this week, which we haven't had for a couple of weeks. So we will be featuring right after this pointless <laughs> jingle. <laughs> Talking of pointless jingles, Marcus, it's time. You really do need to redo that intro music. It's, it's sounding quite dated now and, and nobody likes it. I, so, I get so, fairly regular emails with PS, Marcus's music, shite. So what kind of thing do you think we should do then, Mr. Music? Um, of, you know, something that reflects folky on, thing. No, I think, we, yeah. Do you know? I think <laughs> we ought to go away from what we've got at the moment. Sounds a bit kind of t- techy. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit kind of too techy. I'm thinking maybe easy listening. No, something that reflects our personalities. <laughs> Radio two. <laughs> you speak for yourself, <laughs> right? Okay, we get the metal theme. <laughs> no way. No, no. Just something. Just me. Why on the don't guitar, we? Why don't we keep yeah. it simple? Why don't we just use one of the tracks off of Stoke a Toad? Stoke the Toad or whatever it's called. Stroke, Stroke the Toad. No. Is why they copyrighted. Well, I guess, but, you know, that's like, you know, that's a serious venture into art. What are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> this is serious. Anyway, so there we go. Let's move on to my next piece of paper. So the feature for today is really kind of looking at the 
business benefits of usability? And I'm sure Marcus will have to, a lot to say on this subject. Nope, you're wrong. Nope, you're wrong. There's going to be a lot of that in there. So basically, I think we've looked at user testing um, a number of times before, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think we've ever kind of stepped back and asked, well, what are the benefits of it? You know, what are the business benefits? You know, if you're trying to convince um, your boss or or whatever, how do you convince them that it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a subject worth kind of looking at? Um, and we've looked at this, you know, usability and how to do usability testing relatively recently. But yes, let's look at the profit and loss of usability. That's our subject for today. I, in some ways, I feel like there's a bit of a kind of, I'm going to use a long word now, dichotomy. Ooh. Do you know? Do you want a confession? <laughs> do you know what it means? <laughs> do you want a confession? I thought I knew what it meant, so, but I wasn't that sure when I wrote this blog post. And I actually had to go and look it up on Wikipedia just to be sure that I'd got the right word. Okay. But it is the right word, apparently according to Wikipedia anyway. So anyway, I think, think there's a bit of a dichotomy between what we kind of think and what we actually do as, people, as website managers or web designers. So kind of on one hand, we know that focusing on usability is a good thing. Mm-hmm. We only need to look at companies like Apple and its iPod to know that usability can have business benefits. However, when it kind of comes to putting those principles into practice, I think we often shy away and the kind of realities of you know, actual production work um, makes us a little bit more hesitant and we start to worry about time scales and budget being too tight to stretch for the extra expense and all that kind of stuff. I think people also are guilty of uh, I know best syndrome. Well, I do. And me, obviously. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But and, other you know, people... Do we do usability testing on any of our, you know, like the Headscape site or the Borog well, I would... Well, not the Borog World because that's my piece of crap. But, and also... But, well, no, because uh, that's, my, that's my play area. I don't care whether it's usable or not. Yes, you do. Do I? I do. Well, to be honest, I don't need to use usability testing because I get lots of people write to me going... you know best. What? No, no, no. I do, no, no. I get lots of people writing to me going, why have you done this? I can't find this link. And actually, I don't think Borag Ward is particularly usable, but I really, really don't care. Headscape, I would agree, um, but not, not Borag Ward. No, but I know best. Well, I do know best, but anyway, that's beside the point. And I can, I can actually underline this point, because when, when we have persuaded clients to do usability testing, particularly card sorting relating to information architecture, they, which gives them actual, real, proper user data, you know, yeah. measurable stuff, they go, well, that's very good, but this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> like... Don't take it on board. I know, and we, to be honest, we I'm we, on a tangent here. We've just way, done that's right. We've just done usability testing for another client that will make, remain nameless. Mm-hmm. And um, I was reading through the, the the script that Pete put together. For, oh, probably given away <gasps> which client. <laughs> <it is. laughs> uh oh, uh, he's he's doing a lot of usability testing at the moment for lots of different clients. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was reading through the script that, that he wrote for it. And in, and I was going through the exercise myself because it was a site that I haven't had anything to do with. And I was coming across all these issues. And I, I kept going back to Pete saying, well, really, I think we ought to fix this even before we test it because I know it will come up as an issue. Mm. And he was saying, well, yeah, we've already raised this with the client and no, they're not going to change it. And no, even if it comes up in the usability testing. And you started to go, well, mm. why are they paying for user testing? And his, his response was... Politics. To cover their asses, mm. But if they ignore it, how is that covering their asses? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah. if somebody ever came back and challenged them and said, why is everybody complaining about this? And they go, oh, yes, but we user-tested it. But actually, everybody pointed that out oh, as being wrong. Oh. Yeah, oh dear. <laughs> it's like... Oh. 
Anyway, so we're going to look at a few of the um, assumptions of, you know, that is costly and time consuming and ask, are those really true? And then we're going to look at some of the real profits. That was just the introduction. It's going to be another long show. <laughs> anyway, so let's look at those um, perceived I've losses. I've cheer Paul up. Can you tell? Yeah. yeah He's actually. all giggly now. <laughs> it's just having you back, Marcus. Um, so traditionally, used testing has been undertaken in for, by massive organisations that still uh, spend millions on it today. Um, and for years, it took place in expensive usability labs with two-way mirrors and computer suites and video surveillance and, you know, guard dogs and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not the guard dogs. Um, large numbers of test subjects were required in order to provide statistically relevant data and all that kinds of stuff. And they had to meet a specific demographic profile, blah, 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 blah. And although certainly that approach is effective, it doesn't need to be like that. And everybody kind of considers that it is like that, but it doesn't need to be really. And I've actually talked about this in the past as well that actually usability testing can be really lightweight and expensive um, and can be really quick to do even if it's just like showing a colleague what you're working on or showing somebody in the office next door or you know it doesn't need to be a big deal it can be quick it can be easy and it can be lightweight so it doesn't need to be expensive and it doesn't need to be time consuming um, so I'd encourage you to check out the show notes at boagworld.com forward slash podcast select show um, 110 and then in um, that then links and this is a really long way to do it actually that then links to this <laughs> blog post that in turn links to what I previously written about lightweight usability search on usability testing so you, you know when, you, you know when search. we search remember that yeah. we were talking about earlier you know when we said that my site isn't very usable <laughs> I'm, I'm going to improve As it. I was about to dig in, you know, to really go for that point, I thought, well, actually, no, I won't, because every time I go to that bloody site, I can't find anything. No. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. I, is it on my list of things to redesign? Hmm. One day, maybe. Moving on. Yes. Yeah, so, so, there's, there's, so that's the negatives that maybe they don't really stand up when you think about them. But let's, let's look a little bit at the positives for a minute. And I believe that there are lots of benefits to user testing. In fact, I believe there are one, two, three, four benefits of usability testing I want to look at. Number one is fast issue detection. <laughs> How grand does that you sound? you come up with that? Yeah, oh, all by I'm myself. Impressed. Fast user detection. Issue oh, detection. issue detection. So if um, user testing is properly implemented throughout the life cycle of a web project rather than just before it goes live where you can't change anything because it's all too late, um, it's got the ability to identify problems um, much faster and regular testing will certainly find usability issues, um, but it can also find things like technical bugs and stuff like that as well. So it's really worth doing lots of usability testing. It will identify issues very quickly. And of course, if you identify issues quickly um, before you get too far down the line of the project, um, it's much cheaper to fix. The further into the project you get, the more expensive and time consuming any changes are because a lot of code needs rewriting. Next um, benefit is increased user satisfaction. It's no surprise um, that uh, sites increase user satisfaction or easy-to-use sites increase user satisfaction. However, it's worth pausing for a moment to consider just how important this is. Mm. Um, users who become frustrated will simply leave and they will never, ever return. Well, it is fairly unlikely their return. I mean, if you, um, it's like all these Web 2.0 companies that are around these days. They launch a new product. And I think a lot of them have got this mentality, yeah, we'll get something out in beta that's like, you know, rough and ready. But the trouble is I look at it once. I don't know about you, but I look at those sites once. I'll have a look around. It doesn't do what I want. And I'll never go back, no. really. 
Of course you don't. There's too there's too much to choose from. Exactly. Unless it's a unless it's a tool that you well a tool that you want. Yeah. Then and you're you desperately think, well. Oh, yeah, I really want that. I'll go back and check it. But if it's like some gimmicky yeah thing. So it's anyway. it's you know it's worth getting usability right out of the bat because um, you're probably going to lose people for good. If you're going to use cricket analogies. It's off the bat. Okay. Not out of the bat. Oh, sorry. I didn't even know I used that. <laughs> is that what it is? It's a cricket analogy. Yeah. I wouldn't have used it. I'll wash my mouth out with soap <laughs> immediately. Um, <laughs> also, of course, they're, they're unlikely to recommend it, um, uh, you know, to anyone else, and they may even actively criticise it. So mm. user satisfaction, important. User testing, good way of achieving user satisfaction. I think I've made that point now. You have, yeah. Time to move You're on. You're going to do it again after the next point, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> that's what they always teach you didn't it with presentations say what you're going to say say it and then say what you said I think that's dumb ass personally Mm. in today's anyway right okay next point tangent there it's a similar thing you know when they teach salesmen to to, uh, ask your name and then keep using your name Paul Okay, so you that's use, so you annoying, name, Paul. And, and and if we could look at this website, Paul, and that kind of thing. I had a guy doing this to me the other day that I actually said, "If you say my name again one more time, I'm going to walk out the door." <laughs> <laughs> he went, "Should have seen his face." <laughs> <laughs> See, now we need Lee with his video yeah, camera in to show that wonderful face you just pulled. <laughs> um, okay, next one: reduce support costs. Um, I mean, it's a very simple thing, but obviously if users are struggling to use your site, if they do actually bother to stick around, let's say, for example, in a mythical world where you have no competition and you have an absolutely indispensable offering that everybody has to use, even if they do stick around, they're going to bug you endlessly. Well, how do you do this? How do you do the other? How do you do this? And it, it can get really expensive and time-consuming to deal with all these things. And I think this is especially true for those that are, that are running um, web applications that, you know, um, they really need to consider this because support costs can get very big. So sites with poor usability attract large numbers of support calls and complaints. And usually it's far more economical just to do some usability testing yeah. um, and rather than have continuous calls. And then finally, increased efficiency. It's kind of easy um, to picture in some ways how uh, certain websites can provide monetary benefit um you know an e-commerce site very obviously provides a monetary benefit but increased efficiency is another way that you can actually save money from a website um so this is particularly i suppose particularly obvious if your own staff use your site for whatever reason to, to check you know whatever information um uh, and also, I guess it's, um, it's easy to imagine with web applications that allow users to complete tasks quicker. And so that time is money and all that kind of logic. But to a lesser extent, I think the principle also um, applies to your end users as well. Um, if they can complete tasks quicker, they're more likely to turn uh, to you as an efficient source of information. Um, and they will see you as time saving for them. And that encourages them to keep coming back. Mm. Um so there you go, really. There's kind of my list of reasons why um, usability testing is important. I'm sure there are others. And actually, I'd be really interested um, if other people have taken other kind of approaches with that. Then let me know, and we'll, uh, we'll mention it in the listeners section at the end of the show. Yeah, I mean, well, it's something I talk about clients a lot because they're going, oh, well, you know, do we really need – we're hiring you as experts kind of thing. You know how to build good websites. Yeah. And I don't want to spend X whatever on, on usability testing. And it doesn't take long to persuade them that it's a good idea to at least have one round of usability testing. And it's also, as, as you pointed out earlier, it, 
it can be really, really lightweight. Yeah. Actually, uh, what we do can, tends to be heavier weight than it actually needs to be. And, and often what we do is kind of teach the client how to do it yeah. on that first session. Mm. And, then, and then they take over from then on. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So that's our feature. What we have next is very interesting indeed. So on last week's show, we discussed Internet Explorer 8 and some of the plans that Microsoft have for it. And um, joining me this week is Eric Meyer. Hello, Eric. Good to have you on the show. Cheers. Hello. <laughs> Cheers. Very British of you. I, I try to localize my content. Yes, very good. I'm most impressed. Um, yeah. And we got, we've got Eric on the show really because um, this kind of whole news um, surrounding Microsoft and, and what they're planning to do was broken um, on the Alista Park website in two articles, one of which Eric wrote. Um, and, and the reason I think I wanted to get you on the show to talk about it is because I was kind of struck by the honesty of your article that that a lot of what you were saying was very much i really don't want to like this idea but kind of attitude which is the kind of attitude that that um i think goes down well with with the people that listen to this show so i was wondering eric could you kick off by giving a brief explanation of what it is that microsoft are proposing doing just so we've got a bit of an understanding of it um well, pretty much what they're what they're proposing is that um, that Internet Explorer, Internet Explorer eight, and in the future, will recognize um, a single element, a, a meta tag, mm-hmm. um, which will say, which can be used to say, this is the version of Internet Explorer I want you to act like, so that Internet Explorer eleven can act like Internet Explorer eight did or Internet Explorer right. seven. Um, so that you know the 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 idea basically is well the, it's called they call it version targeting so that you can have your page actually targeted to a certain version of Internet Explorer even if newer versions have come out. Okay, so I mean at face value that sounds very much like browser sniffing, um, which is obviously something that you know has has kind of become considered bad practice. How does it differ? Well, my perspective is that um, it differs because it actually reverses the direction of sniffing. Browser sniffing to date has been a case of authors um, trying to figure out exactly what browsers they want to sniff for and what should happen as a result. Um, This would sort of reverse that. It would be the browser sniffing the page to say, what do you want me to do, Mm -hmm. Um, at least least in the case of Internet Explorer. And it it should be clear that Microsoft uh, has so far as I'm aware anyway, not propose that anyone else has to do this or that this become really part of um, any sort of any sort of standard. They're saying, look, this is what we want. To, this is what we're planning to do in our browser. This is what we want to do in our browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're, they have the same echoes, but I really feel like they're, they're not the same thing. There are a lot of people who disagree with me, but mm-hmm. they're, they, they, really, they really are very different because... Um, well, as we've seen, browsers. One of the reasons the browser sniffing has, by authors, has become sort of a viewed as a bad practice is that it it becomes kind of fragile over time. People do things like, you know, they say, well, well, first of all, there's the case of people saying, if this is Internet Explorer, do such and so, right? And they don't they yeah. don't consider that you know, there might be a version after this version of Internet Explorer that might change what I'm trying to work around. Um, another reason is that. They, you know, people make guesses about what will be in user agent strings, which is usually what people browser sniff on, and 
sometimes those guesses turn out to be wrong, as when Safari first came, well, when Safari came out, it, its user agent string had the, had, the, had the phrase, like gecko, in parentheses. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of people had done browser-sniffing scripts that looked for the word gecko. So uh-huh. all those scripts thought that Safari was, uh, you know, a Mozilla or Firefox or whatever. Um, and so some of them broke. Um, and it's, you know, in a way it's hard to fault the authors because how were they supposed to know that a browser from Apple, not based on Gecko, would have the word Gecko in its user agent string, and yet that happened, yeah. right? So mm. um, this this would be uh, sort of much more controlled, it seems to me, where it would be the browser, you know, saying, you know, what do you want me to act like? And, and that's the other reason why I think this is very different. Browser sniffing usually tries to predict the future, whereas this version targeting that that looks like it will happen in the Internet Explorer, effectively has to predict the past, which is always inherently easier to do. Why Why has Microsoft decided to take this position? I mean, it, it seems to me like in some ways they've, they've created a rod for their own back in the sense that, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're producing, I don't know, Internet Explorer 11, and, and in that has got to be the rendering engine for 10.9.8.7 all the way back. Yeah. You know, is that not just a lot of work on their part? What What's driving them in this direction? Well, I think it will be a lot of work on their part. I don't. I do not believe that the idea is to have completely separate rendering engines for each of those browsers, but to have um, effectively uh, if-then-else statements in in the rendering, or, or cases case statements or switch statements for those who are a little more you know program language savvy. The reason that they're doing this is that they really have. They, they have a problem, well, they have a dilemma, <laughs> and they need to get out of the dilemma. And the dilemma that they face is basically this. There are a lot of pages out there, both on the public web and, and in private intranets, that were developed to, you know, IE6 or IE7, let's say, and weren't developed, you know, sort of in an open standards way. They weren't developed in the way that a lot of people... Um, in the standards movement, develop sites, which is to code to the to the standards, and then figure out how to just work around the problems that they that they encounter. Right? They're, you know, it's like if you have an internet and you know this massive internet site, and your company standard is IE7, the you know the default tendency is to just develop it to IE7, and you know you use you use behaviors that are not correct according to the standards, but are the way that IE7 acts. Okay, so you have that. Basically, you have all these past mistakes, which every browser makes past mistakes. IE7, yeah. it can be argued, has made more mistakes than others. I, not an argument I want to get into. They simply they have that situation where there's this large legacy of, of, of pages. Okay, so mm-hmm. they, they can't have those break for a number of reasons, many of them business reasons, actual monetary reasons. But, at, you know, at, at sort of the ground level, you could look at it as, you know, if the browser changes enough that those pages start to break, it becomes a bad browsing experience for users of that browser. At the same time, the Internet Explorer team would like very much to in- improve their standard support. Okay. So mm-hmm. they did this with IE7, right? They, they fixed a lot of things, and they, they, they went more towards the updating the browser and not, you know, and and didn't worry quite as much about breaking sites. And they got into quite a lot of trouble over it. 
um, both internally and externally. You know, there were people who took them to task for, you know, breaking the web. Um, we've been here before sort of as an industry back in 2000. Um, this is how doc type switching came to be because, mm-hmm. browser, you know, the first few iterations of Internet Explorer and Netscape did very badly at CSS support, right? Um, they tried, and more power to them, but, you know, Internet Explorer got the box model wrong. Um, Netscape got so many things wrong that they had to junk it and start over with a new browser. Um, you know, so doc type switching was basically invented as a way of being able to say, okay, given these criteria, treat, you know, render pages the way that they used to be rendered, and then given these other criteria, go the more standard route, right? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, from the Microsoft perspective, this is sort of like a super doc type switch, um, except mm. in this case, instead of hinging it on a doc type, they're hinging it on information about what the browser version is. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. When when I first heard about this and I first read your article and the other one on a list apart, mm-hmm. my initial reaction was, oh, no, you know, oh, this feels wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, which is what, in a sense, you said that you went through when, you know, when you were writing the article. Uh, and then uh, we actually were discussing it on, on last week's show with um, John Oxton and John Hicks. And, and the same kind of thing came out that we, we felt very uncomfortable with mm-hmm. this. And we were reflecting... Um, and a lot of the things that were said, including, um, you know, Jeremy Keith, who who made this point of, you know, you you actually are in a position where you're actively having to tell Internet Explorer 8 to behave like Internet Explorer 8 and not Internet Explorer 7, which which seems a bizarre set of circumstances. But since then, I've been thinking about it a little bit and I, I'm struggling to come up with a reason that I really object to this beyond a kind of... Um, you know, a principle of the thing that I feel like I shouldn't agree with it, but I, I'm having trouble articulating why. I guess. I mean, what kind of what kind of things are you seeing? I mean, you must have seen a lot of objections come up when you when you kind of are brave enough to step up and and say what you did on a list apart. I'm sure there was quite a backlash. And and what kind of things are people saying and throwing against this? Yeah, I, I did see quite a few objections. Um, <laughs> well, one of them, I mean, one of them is a is a, is a, is it an um, objection that Jeremy brought forth, which I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about that, which is that the default behavior is to default to IE7, as I understand it. So when IE8 comes out, mm-hmm. if it doesn't see this version target meta tag in a page, it will assume that that page is to be treated as IE7 would have treated it, right? Mm-hmm. Which, again, completely reverses what we're used to. What we're used to is yeah. a new browser comes out, the page will be interpreted according to the latest and greatest you know, unless you're using a quarks mode, back type switch and all. But anyway, it's bizarre. And yes, I did go through the same thing where I first saw it, and I was like, what? You know, yeah. a good old WTF, basically. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, when I first saw this, it was at the beginning of January when Aaron Gustafson first submitted his, his submitted the first draft of his article. I hadn't actually heard about this before then. Um and I started arguing with him about it in the Alyssa Part sort of editorial board. And, but very quickly came to realize, you know, why am I objecting to this? And I started to step back and say, okay, what's the deal here? And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's where that article came from, was as we did that back and forth, you know, everyone was like, would you write an article where you go through that? Because that's what a lot of people are going to go through. Um, you know, sort of the foreseeing and, and wanting to retch. Um, some of the so there's the default behavior, which is 
you have to have the meta in order to get the latest and greatest. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to see that changed. I would like to have Internet Explorer act the way browsers always have because that's what I'm used to. But at the same time, I have to be realistic about the problem that they face, which I, you know, ex- would, would, that I was explaining before. Yeah, just, because that wouldn't solve that wouldn't solve their fundamental problem, which is right. that people. That, that aren't aware of, you know, de- working to the latest standards aren't going to be aware of the fact they have to put a meta, you know, metadata in their pages either. Right. Um, some people mm. have said that um, that Microsoft, of anyone, is in a position to educate people who are not aware mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the need to do just that one thing. And that's actually one of the points I made when talking with a member of the IE team about this. There are other objections that I, I think mostly seem to be related to that. For example, Bruce Lawson um, posted just in the last few days that the default behavior effectively means that from an accessibility point of view, any page that doesn't have this meta tag is stuck with Internet Explorer 7's accessibility support, which apparently is not where it should be. Mm. So, you know, he's made the point that, you know, freezing pages to IE7 in the absence of any other information freezes them in sort of this inaccessible state. Um, or this, you know, less than fully accessible state. I, I'm not an accessibility expert, so I don't, I don't know how best to characterize that. But, you know, we'll have those accessibility problems and and could keep them for years and years, as opposed to, you know, as accessibility features improve in Internet Explorer, getting those benefits. And that's a very real objection. One of the um, and a very that's a very real concern, and I think one that that needs to be made um, to the Microsoft people because, you know, accessibility is very important. Um, there are other objections um, from the JavaScript community. It's actually been interesting in the JavaScript community. There's been a real dichotomy. There have been some JavaScript library authors who have been like, yes, finally, thank God, someone is talking about versioning, right? And then right. there are others who have been saying, oh, my God, what are you kidding? Uh, the libraries will have to support all of these, like, backwards engines. Yeah. Again, not enough of an expert to know which side of that debate, you know, which side of that sort of dichotomy I would come down on. Um, you know, I, I sort of, in my own blog post, said, wouldn't you just use object detection and not worry about what the version number is? But mm-hmm. I, I guess that that doesn't fully address the problem, um, mm-hmm. or at least that's what I've been told. Um, but it's. It, again, it's something that needs to be figured out because there, are, you know, there have been some fantastic JavaScript libraries and some fantastic um, things that can be done with those. Um, and if this is if this is a move that will that will hamper sort of the growth of that field, then that would also bother me. Um, hmm. Let's see. Also, I, there's also the security objection, but that's you know the, the the idea that every sort of every backwards version you have, you're sort of you're, you're complicating your ability to to keep your security holes closed. Um, mm. But that, you know, that's the kind of thing where I, where I just have to say, look, that's up to the browser maker to figure out. I mean, I guess that the problem with the default, uh, the, you know, the whole default behavior thing is, is how badly it's going to break things. You know, how how many sites are going to be broken, by, you know, if the default behavior was the latest browser um, and if it was 
um, you know, how badly are those sites going to be broken? Are they going to be unusable? Are we only talking about some small changes? You know, because there are a lot of, I guess there are a lot of websites out there as well that just aren't supported at all, that content has been put online. There is nobody checking them, nobody checking when a new browser comes along. And, you know, if IE8 was released um, and you know, those websites became completely inaccessible and unusable, then obviously there's a big issue there because you're losing large amounts of content off the web. But, you you know, a lot of it's, I guess a lot of it's unknown entities at the moment, isn't it? It's it's guesswork. Yes, there's a lot of guesswork. And that, I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. I think, I think if we knew, you know, if there were some sort of, some sort of statistics, like if the IE team were to come out and say, look, we've done testing with, with, you know, we, 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 built a version where the, the default behavior was latest and we tested it against these 1,000 QA sites and 20% of them broke, you know, mm-hmm. and 5% of them were completely unusable. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be one thing. Or if they said, okay, we tested in like two sites were broken and you could still read them, but they were, they looked a little weird. That would be different. And nobody does really know. And, and um, at least nobody outside of Microsoft and maybe not even them. I don't know if they've done that kind of testing yet. Um, there and and I should also I'm sorry there was there is one other objection, which comes from at least um, a couple of of um, the browser, other browser manufacturers that this is in effect anti-competitive that it, whether it's meant to be or not that it has that effect um, because Internet Explorer is such a large market share they have to they have to worry about what it does whether or not that yeah. has any reference. The standards or not, and so to them, it becomes much harder to do that, right? So if they're going to keep up that effort, it will become much harder in a in, in sort of in this version targeting world after a few releases. Um, of course, the question is whether or not they would need to do that or not, and that there's a lot of debate around that. Where you know, there are people who who have said, just stop, stop making reference to Internet Explorer, let it strangle itself to death, and you know, I don't I don't want to get into you know, all, all sort of the, the back and forth that's happened, but that is that is another objection. Um, I guess is there, is there some danger here as well that, you know, that once you've got this version targeting in place that, you know, Microsoft could go off, you know, on a complete tangent and start introducing, you know, all kinds of um, proprietary uh, functionality into their browser um, that isn't supported by the other. And you end up in a situation of having browser wars again with, you know, different browsers implementing different, you know, proprietary tags and stuff like that. Or or are we, we well and truly beyond that, do you think? Um, it is certainly a risk. And the degree, you know, how much of a risk, I think, influences where people stand on this. Um, mm. I don't I don't see that personally as being as much of a risk because yes, the Internet Explorer team could, you know, introduce a whole set of proprietary properties that let them that let an author change the color of the browser chrome, right? Sort mm. of the next step after a colored yeah. scroll bars. Um, yeah. or, you know, replace the backward and forward buttons in the browser, whatever. Um, and if nobody else supports that I think those efforts will, will largely strangle themselves. I mean, colored scroll bars we don't really hear about anymore. People still do them. I mean, you know, but nobody really, nobody else really cares, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm not, I would not claim to be smart enough to foresee everything that could possibly be done, but I think in a lot of ways that might not be a bad thing. 
um, because it would let Microsoft experiment with with sort of with with um, with less constraints. Um, mm, one one yeah. of one of the you know they can do initial implementations of things that are in CSS three, and then if the behavior you know if the definition of those things changes, then in a later version they can fix what they did. Right, they can they can they can they can change to match the spec, and then still have backwards compatibility to pages that were developed under the assumption of that sort of interim implementation. And you know, mm. there are people who say, who would say, well, they should never implement anything until it's been completely nailed down. But that doesn't really work because one of the ways that you get yourself out of the candidate recommendation phase of the W3C is to have interoperable implementations. Well, the only way to have implementations is for someone to implement them. And then if they find out during the phase, and this is part of what candidate recommendation phase is about, if they find out during that phase that the way that, you know, such and so property has been has been specified doesn't work in the real world for whatever reason, then they need to be able to go back and change it. Right. But mm. in the meantime, if you're Internet Explorer and you know you know, eleven billion pages have been implemented to your particular version of of, you know, your IE eight version of cool property so so i mean you you wrote this list of part uh, article it went out on the 21st of january we sh we should probably say that we're recording this interview on the 29th of january and it, it it's not going to go out for another week mm -hmm. um so things might move on and in between but you know there's obviously been a lot of discussion since you released that article has your views really changed on this in in any way are you still fairly in favor of this approach or have there been more concerns raised that have made you doubt it um i'm still in favor of the general idea the implementation i'm a little bit less i guess i would say i'm more agnostic about um Okay. This implement. I mean, this is certainly something that seems to work. But the general idea of having of preserving backwards compatibility, so as not to break sites, while still being able to change and you know basically improve and fix the browser, I'm all in favor of. Um, the default behavior still bothers me, and I'm and I'm still having trouble working out whether it's a case of there are honest to goodness real technical reasons, you know, or it just feels wrong. There needs to be something. How it how it's gone about is another question. I mean, if if the if the IE team and the people that they have to answer to effectively can be convinced that having the default behavior switched and then educating people who who want to freeze their sites to on how to freeze their sites using you know the meta. So using a meta to set themselves to IE seven, if they can be convinced to do that, and 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 they think that 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 would still need the pro, you know still solve the mm -hmm. problem that they face, then I'm all for it. Um, the accessibility concerns do bother me, um, and I think that that's another argument in favor of switching the default behavior. But at the same time, I mean, I also have to recognize that switching the default behavior, as you said earlier, you know from a certain perspective, completely mm. negates the entire reason to do this. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, given a certain set of circumstances, if they're going to switch the default behavior, they might almost as well mm. just not even do it, okay? But it, again, that, that sort of depends on how much breakage on how many sites and, you know, what kind. And yeah. the other unknown that we're facing here is we don't yet know
just how different the IE8 behaviors are as compared to IE7. We, we, have, we have sort of a, we have a clue in that, you know, it's already known that, that there's an internal build of no. IE8 that, that can support the ACID2 test, right, which they weren't even really very close to. I guess depending on who you talk to, but they weren't they didn't support it before. So in order to support yeah. ACID two, I mean they have to have things like generated content and CSS, which they completely don't have in IE seven. Um they, they have to have fixed some of their you know, some parsing bugs and, and so on and so forth. I mean that's that hints at a very large change. Okay, even bigger than the change between IE six and IE seven, but we don't know at this stage. You know, it it could be and this is been one of my objections to ACID 2 or one of my discomforts with ACID 2 over the, over the years is it mm-hmm. could be that they've just implemented exactly the things that were needed to make ACID 2 work and no more, right? Which is the wrong way to go about supporting ACID 2, and I don't know that they've done that, but it's possible, okay? So if they've done that, then maybe it's not yeah. such a huge change, but if those things came about as part of sort of a broader push towards implementing more advanced selectors and fixing bugs and implementing generated content and really pushing you know, into the areas of CSS2 that they don't support and the areas of advanced CSS modules that they don't support yet, then that could be an enormous change. And, they, you know, in that case, there's a much higher risk of them breaking a ton of sites if they don't have a, a mechanism like this in place to deal with mm. them. So, I mean, in some senses, you know, <laughs> after us discussing this for however long we've been discussing it, there, there's very little at this stage that we can particularly do about this. You know, it, it, it's a... Uh, um, for the average web designer, you know, Internet Explorer 8 isn't going to be out in the immediate one, presumes. Um, and even even when it does, we're talking about relatively minor changes that they're going to have to make to their site. I guess the biggest area, biggest immediate concern is maybe how, you know, how you think about sites that you're building at the moment. You know, do you, do you worry so much about things like progressive enhancement if, if maybe you know, the way the Internet Explorer works in the future is going to be different. I guess there's still good principles, aren't they, even if, you know, even... Yes. Yeah, absolutely, there's still good principles, and that is how I have developed sites and will continue to develop sites. I mean, really, I think what it comes down to here is who's going to have to add the the meta tag. Yeah. Is it going to be people who do forward development, you know, forward compatible development? Is it going to be standards-aware developers, or is it going to be, you know, people who aren't in that sort of crowd. Um, it's not fair in a way that the people who have been doing things the right way will have to take that on. But on the other hand, it it could well, I mean, if you look at the numbers, there are a lot less of us. I, and we're much more, in some ways, we're much more equipped to do it. Right, to, to understand why it's needed and, and how to do it and how to do it the right way and when not to do it for that yeah. matter, right? Um you know, because when you when you develop a site for someone and you don't, you, you know, it, it seems like a one-off and they're really not going to be keeping it up, you might leave the meta tag off because you know that that will default it to IE7 and that's what you want. Or you might explicitly include it because you always want it to default to IE7 or IE8. Or, you know, in my site, I mean, if this happens, I'll probably use the edge keyword or I'll do something like IE equals 1024, yeah. right? So that I will always get the latest and greatest, right? And so that's for me personally, but for a client, I would have a much harder time sort of justifying that because, you know, clients don't care whether it's forward compatible development or not. They care about whether their site works and will continue to work, mm. right? 
So, yeah, and so the, the point has been made, as you did, that in a lot of ways people who are sort of more clued in, or not sort of, people who are more clued in, are better equipped to take this on as opposed to, you know, somebody's grandmother who uses Dreamweaver or, or, or whatever to put together a site for her quilting circle. And, you know, this happens all the time. Yeah. It's not, you know, doesn't even, doesn't ever look at the markup, <laughs> you know, let alone would understand what, why, you know, this would need to be done. Um, why is, there would need to be some sort of meta tag. Um, first you'd have to explain the concept of tags, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, so, a lot of these people don't even necessarily re- realize there's multiple versions of a browser, or indeed that there are multiple browsers. <laughs> and, and that as well, yes. Those are, those are also, you know, issues that, that have to be faced. Um, some, somebody's going to have to do this, or, el- or else, you know, all, all of those, you know, all, not all of those, but a lot of those changes in I, that, you know, in a lot of those advances that IEA seems to have ready to go, as indicated by passing the ASA2 test, might well have to come back out. Yeah. Right? You can always pack changes out of a code base. And that, I mean, that really seems to me to be the, the dilemma. And, you know, I want to say again, there are people who reject that as being the choice. They, they, you know, there are people who feel very strongly that that is not, in fact, the choice. And even if that is, you know, even if that, even if you accept that's the choice, that they should keep the changes in, but be willing to break sites because sites always have to be updated anyway. And those are, you know, and that's how browsers have always done it. So there's, you know, a, a large, there's a large amount of history that says that that can happen, and browsers can still advance. So, you know. Mm. We will see, won't we? That's what it boils down to. We will have to wait and see. Okay, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking that all through. Uh, it's it's an interesting area, and I think it is an area that will, you know, will have significant impact on how things develop in the in the future. So it's good to have your perspective on it. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciated it. So in um, last week's show, I kind of screwed up a little bit as I badly bastardized last week's show <laughs> oh, very funny as i badly bastardized the name of the guy that was reviewing textmate um and, and both all three of us sit there trying to come up with what his name was the best we could come up was was, was with teflon which wasn't his name right um but anyway so uh, as we badly screwed up his name i decided it's only fair to allow him another go this week um, especially as he sent in an audio question and started off by saying what his name was, which is very nice. Handy. Yeah. So here, here he is. Hello, Paul. My name is pronounced Tyvian. Ironically, Teflon is the only nickname to really stick to me. My question is thus. I have a friend, yes, just one, and they want me to sort out their site for them. I want them to be able to update their site for themselves, but they don't know HTML or CSS. What is the best way to solve this problem? Thank you. So, very interesting question. Basic CMS um, and how to deal with CMSs and how to accommodate clients that want to be able to update their own content. I mean, the obvious, you know, the obvious answer here is... Just send send Word documents to to, to their mate and he can just do the HTML. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every time you want to change. Easy. Yeah, and you can charge them. It used to be this. I knew somebody once, or um, one of our clients, who the previous web design agency worked for, would charge them £50 
for every update, even if it was just to add a comma. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? I know. Crazy. But, but in the modern world of newfangled technology, a content management system is the obvious answer. Um, And we've covered this before in the show. If you want to know what show we covered it in, it was show 24. Probably others as well. So a long, long time ago, because we're on 110. I know. But we did cover it. We probably ought to revisit it. Let's go back and look at CMSs. Well, no, I had a look at it. And actually, everything that we said still stands. So I don't really feel a need to revisit it particularly. Um, and if you're re- building a relatively big site that needs constant updating, then I'd definitely encourage you to go back and check out that show because, you know, that, yeah, that kind of covers that topic. Also, on the, blo- uh, the show notes associated with that show, um, we recommend a load of open source stuff and, you know, things where you can find out more about content management systems. So it's worthwhile. However, I'm kind of guessing that maybe um, a full-blown CMS might be a little bit of an overkill in this situation. Um, so you might want to consider using some blogging software like WordPress or something like that. Um, but there, are, another final option is maybe to use Contribute. If you haven't come across Contribute before, it's basically a cut-down version of Dreamweaver, so it's a WYSIWYG editor for HTML. But it kind of works fairly well with standards, compliant code, and stuff like that. So um, you could you can set it up reasonably well. You can build a nice, simple, static site, and then your friend can edit it with this, this kind of WYSIWYG tool. The issue with, with Contribute is if you want to start adding loads of pages. You can do it, but then there's, there's yeah. a matter of navigation and changing yeah. here. And so there. it doesn't dynamically update the navigation. But for editing you know, existing content, it's really, really good. Mm. I mean, yeah, like you say, you can add pages. So hopefully that helps, and we'll move on to our second question, which is from Lauren. Would you like Lauren. to... What did I just say? Lauren. What's wrong with that? It's Lauren. Lauren, Lauren. All the same, <laughs> isn't it? Shut up. I was about to read do a, the question. Do a bad Jewish accent then, thought better of it. Yeah. Right. Do I have to read it in a girly voice? Yeah. No, I'm not going to. Go on. Um, my question is about starting a blog. Right now, my nights are filled with homework, but once I complete my program, I can truly dedicate my time to building my portfolio. Are blogs really that important now? I don't know if I can come up with meaningful content to make my blog stand out. Does this mean I won't be able to find a good job in the industry without one? Good question. And I want to say something before we answer that question. (laughs) Right. Which is one of the reviews on iTunes says about this show that all we do is use it as a marketing tool for Headscape. Really? Which it kind of is, yeah. and I accept that. But bloody hell, number of flipping scavvy students that listen to this show, uh, we get nothing back from any of you. Why should we be answering questions about people's homework? What good are you to us? <laughs> Not going to make any money out of you, are we, Doran? Anyway, that said... <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Um, so, yes, yes, that said, good question. I think possibly you're misunderstanding a little bit of what I was saying in this uh, last show. Uh, and... And maybe the problem is that you're thinking about a portfolio and a blog as if they're two separate things. I think really they could be kind of combined into your site, really. Um, and as somebody who kind of hate, <laughs> as somebody who regularly hires web designers, I have to say that I kind of find standard boring portfolio sites kind of frustrating. At worst, they show me some pretty pictures. At best, examples of fully functional sites. However, they don't really tell me kind of anything about. I don't know, your thought process that's gone behind the design. You know, why did you choose the colours you did? Who is your target audience? How has that affected your design? All of that kind of stuff. Um, a blog can be used as a portfolio, 
Uh, you know, so you can put up designs in there. Blogs don't just need to be lots of writing. Mm. You know, you could put audio up there. You could put video up in a blog. You can put pictures up in a blog. Um, but it allows you to provide some more depth into the designs that you're preventing. Preventing? What is wrong with me? <laughs> Presenting. Presenting. Um, you know, also, a blog allows you to link to other content that you've seen on the web and express your views on that content. It kind of gives me as an employer, you know, an understanding of, of how you're thinking about the web, you know. And, and to be honest, even that you're actually bothering to read mm. stuff that's out there and you're keeping up to date. You know, okay. Shows keenness. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm not expecting a student who's looking for their first job to be writing, you know, long blog posts about, you know, a cutting edge CSS technique or, you know, how you solved the, you know, Ajax and accessibility issues. You know, what I'm looking for is somebody that can articulate their thinking behind designs and show an understanding of what's going on in the industry and, you know, is reading about stuff and has got opinions. So that's what I think a blog is all about. And, yeah, I think you should be doing that. But I don't think it necessarily needs to be more work because you can just kind of... And would you say it's quality, not quantity? No, quantity. Actually, I'm not, I'm not joking. I do think it's quantity. Well, but from a, a, as an employer's point of view... Mm. Yeah. I know this sounds really dumb. And uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's from my point of view. But... I always like, you know, when, when let's go back into the midst of time before the internet, right? Yeah. Whenever um, you went for an interview, okay, you had you normally had two things with you. You used to have your, your open portfolio that had all your work in, you nicely presented. I'm, I'm now pretending I'm a designer. Right. Okay. And at the yeah. front of it, you had your best pieces of work. Yeah, yeah. And then in the middle, you had the crap. And then at the back, you put the next best pieces, you know, and, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. And then tucked into the back sleeve, you would always have your sketchbook, right? And I think the really good people were the people that took out the sketchbook and looked through the sketchbook. Because that's where you kind of, you got an idea of the type of person they were, their, their thought processes, their, um, you know, their doodles, you know, when they were mm. messing around and that kind of stuff. And I think that's as important as the really high quality stuff in the portfolio. Okay, yeah, I suppose it's just a glance. You can, uh, high quality, yep, they can do it. Tick, yeah. Box ticked. Yeah. And then but if you kind of want to get a bit of a better understanding as an employee, and mm. also, let's, don't take this wrong, but if you're a student, on the grand scheme of things, however good you think your work is, you know, somebody that's working in the industry 10, 12, 15 years or whatever, they're going to think it's shit. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be great. It's not going to be outstanding. So what an employer is looking for is potential. Mm. And I think potential is about more than just polished pieces of work that are never going to be that polished. It's about kind of an understanding and that kind of thing. Cool. So good answer, Paul. Well good done. answer. Whee! So there you go. Hopefully they were useful listener questions. Um, don't forget that you can send them in. Um, oh, damn. I've lost the flipping... Hang on. Hang on. Wait for it. It's gonna, this is going to be really good in a minute. No, this is professional. <laughs> it's professionalism personified. Oh, no. That's a company, isn't it? Personified. Personified. Ever since they've launched personified, I always say personified instead of personified. And I'm talking now instead of actually navigating what to the link. What are you trying to do? Paul? No, well, because we set up this new thing, haven't we? Whereby um, they can send audio questions oh, in yeah. via via Skype. So, my, if you want to send, uh, you, if you've got Skype and you use Skype already, you can leave an audio question at Boag Show, Boag World Show. Um, that's my Skype ID. Or if you have a phone, which I think most people have. <laughs> 
you can call um, UK number, which is plus 44, um, uh, 208133512. That's 44208133512. That was so hard not talking all over you there. So there we go. So um, if yes. you're calling from the, from the UK, there's a zero. Yes, instead of the four four. Well, they can yeah, work now. Okay. But actually, if you're calling, yeah, yes. So that's good. Fine. Stop now. Please, please send audio I was questions. Say while you're ahead, but <laughs> <laughs> that's long since stopped being the case. Yes, uh, please, please send audio questions. We really like them. They're fun, mm-hmm. and it makes more editing work for Marcus, which is always satisfying. <laughs> I'd really like to get into a position where we have two audio questions a week. Yes, maybe that lots would be good. Actually. Maybe lots of random clips drop through as well. <laughs> Maybe some sound effects well, got, in the background. Got, people are going to send in videos of themselves it was, for our video podcast. Yeah, they will. It was interesting um, talking to John and John um, from Risington last week. And um, uh, they were basically saying that the reason their, their podcasts are so sporadic is because they, they do a lot of those kind of mm, effects yeah. and stuff. And it takes forever to edit. But they've decided now to go for the Boag World crap approach was the <laughs> way they put is, it. Well, just no editing, basically, and just yeah, throwing the situation. Right too. Yes, it's natural. Natural. Yeah, it. it's not real. Posh. It's real, real, man. People like reality. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, let's wrap up today's show then. I guess. Yeah. Uh, we should have been. We we're supposed to be putting a ding, 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 or whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Well, I might. Hey, you can if you want, can you? Yeah, I can. You have to replace that as well when you do the new music. Mm-hmm. Go on then. Do your joke. I've got lots of jokes here. Because that's what, I, have they been st- stacking up or you've been away? I've got quite a lot, but, but, but particularly, and I've only just found this particular email, thank you to Harry for sending, um, it's t- basically Tommy Cooper's again. I, I don't think they are actual Tommy Cooper jokes, but they're in, that kind of style. in his style. I phoned the local gym and I asked if they could teach me how to do the splits. He said, how flexible are you? I said, I can't do Tuesdays. Yeah, okay. And there's loads more. I think I'm just going to sit back because I'm obviously not going to be required to laugh in the mic. So I was getting into my car and this bloke says to me, can you give me a lift? I said, sure, you look great. The world's your oyster. Go for it. (laughs) That's quite good. (laughs) Oh, I'll give you one more. Exit signs. They're on the way out, aren't they? (laughs) And there's loads more, so you're going to have some more of those. For weeks and weeks Weeks to come. Weeks and weeks. So anyway, thank you very much for listening to today's show. Um, and as always, you can get to the show notes at boagworld.com forward slash podcast, select show 110 if you can find it, because obviously the usability on my site is so shy, according to Marcus, but there we go. Well, you can get, if you go now, well, what's now? We're at February the 6th, you'll be all right. Why? Well, because it'll be the first page you come to. <laughs> right, oh, I see, yeah, 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 fair comment. Okay, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Good to have you back, Marcus. Nice to be back, Paul.